Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. We were starting to develop information regarding how they were establishing multiple weapons cache sites across the countryside. There was also the suitcase nukes, which were um, small nuclear devices that were buried, uh, you know, underground. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to unknown accounts of the Cold War. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. I speak with Aidan McGee, who operated as the commander of a highly specialised counterintelligence unit in West Germany during the last decade of the Cold War. We talk about his new book, The Cold War Wilderness of Mirrors, Counterintelligence and the US and Soviet Military Liaison Missions, 1947 to 1990. Now, this is a rare book that details some never-before-documented accounts of the Soviet military liaison mission, the SMLM, in West Germany and the US military liaison mission, USMLM, in East Germany. And it shows how they were microcosms of the Cold War strategic intelligence and counterintelligence landscape. I also discuss with Aidan how the book shows the impact of CIA director James Angleton's legacy, which restricted counterintelligence operations long after his departure. Now, I could do with your help to uh, continue producing the podcast. Single or monthly donations really help to keep the podcast on the air. So if you could go along to coldwarconversations.com slash donate and uh, give what you think is, is worthy of the podcast, I would really appreciate it. And uh, if you can't wait for next week's episode, I do recommend you visit our Facebook discussion group where guests and listeners continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Now, I've been looking for accounts of the Soviet military liaison missions in West Germany for some time now, and uh, I am so pleased to welcome Aidan McGee to our Cold War conversation. There are large volumes of uh, archives and documents that the U.S. government goes through every year to determine if they're going to retain it just because uh, they don't have the space. And in a lot of cases, it's reviewed, and I'll use air quotes, to determine if it uh, is of any historical value and they're being destroyed uh, every year. So the point that I learned was that I'm convinced that within the book that I've written, if I had not documented many of the anecdotes, many of the stories that are in that book, they would have never seen the light of day. And why I, was, I was amazed by the amount of information of very interesting things that took place back during the Cold War that I'm aware of that is no longer documented. So if these stories are not told by those who live them, you know, they're going to fade from human 
memory and kind of be lost in the sands of time. So uh, my recommendation to any of your uh, listeners out there, if you have tales to tell, go ahead and get them uh, on paper or call in and get on his podcast because there's a lot of uh, information that uh, just does not exist anymore. Thank you very much for that, Aiden. Yeah, we're we're both on the same mission here, Aiden, to capture these stories before they're lost. And I found your book absolutely fascinating. Aiden, one of the things that particularly intrigued me about the book was the title, because you've managed to find information about the Soviet military liaison missions, which from my point of view, I've not I've hardly seen anything in English that details their mission. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned uh, Ian the title, and that just gives me an opportunity to, you know, of course, there is a classic book, 40 years old now, called The uh, Wilderness of Mirrors. So myself and my publisher had some issues of whether we would incorporate that into uh, my book as well. But I, I know that you and any of the other readers will realize that it is based on the Wilderness of Mirrors concept by James Angleton, the CIA director from 1954 to 1974, probably one of the most iconic figures in U.S. Uh, counterintelligence. And the reason that I brought that into the title is because the Wilderness of Mirrors is kind of a strategic concept of intelligence, counterintelligence, disinformation that we played between the U.S., the Allies, and the Soviets throughout the entire Cold War. And when I talked about the larger strategic context for my book, that's what I get to, is that there was this larger strategic uh, battle going on in the Cold War. And then as I conducted my research, I realized that I was involved with the uh, military liaison missions and what was really a microcosm of that larger uh, context and the larger struggle that was going on. So that's why I kind of take that strategic level down to the uh, the operational level when I begin talking about the uh, military liaison missions. Okay. And what were these missions allowed to do? Yeah. So the missions, it was agreed upon between the U.S. and the um, and the Soviets in 1947, that they would uh, stand up the missions, mainly because there was a lot of uncertainty and everybody agreed that it would be a good idea to have an open channel of communication to make sure there were no miscalculations because there was obviously uh, a lot of distrust between the Soviets and the Allies at the time. So we and the French and the uh, Brits signed uh, similar agreements with the Soviets that we would have a liaison element located in each other's sector. Under the Eugner Malenin Agreement, uh, the Soviet mission was established in Frankfurt, and it was referred to as the Soviet Military Liaison Mission Frankfurt, or uh, SMLMF. And the uh, U.S. mission was established in Potsdam, co-located with a group of Soviet forces uh, there, and it was referred to as the U.S. Military Liaison Mission, or USMLM, and uh, I know it upset some of the uh, USMLM alumni, but uh, those uh, elements were broadly referred to as USMLM or SMLMF, and so you may hear me refer to those uh, that way from time to time. I'm sure they'll uh, they'll be fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> in our agreement, we agreed to 14 personnel and 10 vehicles in each sector, and then there were a number of other provisions talking about how logistical support, given the uh, facilities, the rights of extraterritoriality, which is what our embassies and uh, consulates also enjoy. But there was one uh, provision in the agreement that really kind of set the stage for the game of cat and mouse that played out every day, every year for the rest of the 
Cold War, and that is the provision that the MLMs would be permitted complete freedom of travel wherever and whenever it will be desired over territory and roads in both zones, except places of military disposition of military units. So this was a very broad provision that, uh, you know, kind of set in stage the game that began. And what we saw is both uh, MLMs immediately took that permitted complete freedom of travel provision as the license to go out along throughout the countryside and collect on each other's military forces. So that was uh, set in motion. Uh, then a few years later, uh, except places of military disposition was never further defined in the provision. So uh, in 1951, for the first time, the Soviets issued a map with uh, shaded areas, which they referred to as permanently restricted areas or PRAs. And that was designated where the uh, U.S. MLM was not allowed to travel. In kind, the U.S. issued a map, a similar map later that year, telling the Soviet MLM where they were not allowed to travel. And then really the only other cooperative norm that was established throughout the MLM era was that both sides recognized that they had the right to conduct detentions, which is just as the word sounds, is to detain the other's MLM vehicle if they thought that it was in a restricted area or doing something that it uh, not should not be done. So the intent of a detention was to catch a MLM vehicle red-handed in a uh, permanently restricted area and uh, as evidence of a violation of Eubner Malenin agreement. Yes, because with the USMLM in East Germany, they were up against both the Soviets and the the Stasi as well in terms of monitoring and trying to restrict their movements, weren't they? Yeah, even though they had these kind of basic ground rules that we've just run through, uh, that's really where the similarities between the two end. And it has a lot to do with, as you mentioned, kind of the operational environment. Uh, East Germany was a very target-rich environment. 20 Soviet divisions, six East German divisions, and they treated East Germany as just one big uh, maneuver training area. Whereas in the U.S. sector, we kind of respected the rights of the West Germans. Uh, we only had four divisions at the height of the occupation. And most of the training our military did was in you know, training facilities near the garrison locations, or there were three large uh, training facilities, two of which were in the U.S. sector at Grafenwehr and Hohenfels, West Germany. Whereas the U.S. MLM were able to kind of recon all over the uh, countryside looking for military activity, the activity of military interest for the Soviets was pretty well contained on those training sites. And quite frankly, the, you know, they could probably find out what units were training when by looking in the Stars and Stripes newspaper. So it was quite a different environment. And, uh, you know, that kind of established the different operating models that the two MLMs had. One key issue was, or one key factor in how the operating models developed was that shortly after establishing the MLM in Potsdam, the U.S. also established in the late 40s a very robust support facility uh, in West Berlin. So in addition to the 14 personnel that were permanently accredited, they had an additional 56 personnel in West Germany. So basically that 14-person element was really a 70-person element, and they were able to quite liberally exchange accreditation papers, exchange uh, tour vehicles. So they had a, a, a complete rotation of tours going through the area. So they were able to do 
up to three or four tours at a time, doing two-day, three-day, four-day tours all over East Germany. So they developed into a massive intelligence collection and um, production team. They were probably, if not the most prolific UMIT collection capability in the DOD in the, uh, in the U.S., they were one of the most prolific. In contrast, the Soviets maintained their 14 personnel on that island uh, there in Frankfurt. If you look at the area of the uh, U.S. sector, Frankfurt is relatively to the west of the sector, whereas the main training areas are to the east of the sector. So when they would go out on tours and they didn't tour that actively, they would go out maybe uh, one tour per day, five days a week. And their tour, standard touring pattern was that they would drive three hours to the training area, spend a couple of hours uh, looking around to see what was going on, just confirming what they'd probably already read in the Stars and Stripes. And then they'd come back to the Frankfurt area. So they were a very benign kind of collection threat in comparison to the U.S. MLM and the East. And the kind of counterintelligence approaches to both of those reflected that operation model. Whereas we know that the, uh, you know, the Stasi, the East Germany was a surveillance state. The Stasi had, they believed, up to, uh, you know, one in five uh, citizens were either paid or volunteer informants. And they were primarily there to look at their fellow citizens and their co-workers. But of course, they, whenever they would see a you smell them vehicle on the uh, on the road. They would call it in. The Stasi had a central headquarters that was dedicated to nothing but surveillance and coverage of you smell them. And, and through observations over the years, they did have a very capable centrally managed surveillance system where Stasi vehicles would pick up the uh, you smell them vehicles as soon as they crossed the Freedom Bridge. And they would try to keep surveillance of them. And you, they could see how the, you smell them move from region to region. The local police would also pick up surveillance and support the effort as well. So they were very concerned and tried to cover you smell them as well as they could. But you smell them developed kind of a brute force technique for anti-surveillance in that all their vehicles were ruggedized. They had metal uh, underpinnings. They had uh, suspension systems. They had additional gas tanks for, uh, you know, for additional range. So basically they were fitted for off-road uh, reconnaissance mission and they were high performance vehicles. So once the uh, tour officer decided that it was time to lose their Stasi or Vopo surveillance, they would just uh, gun it on the Audubon, get up to 120, 140 miles an hour. And once they, real they saw that they had lost the surveillance, they just pull off the road sit, watch the uh, Stasi vehicles um, go by, wait a while, and then they would go cross-country, usually in lights out, uh, infrared mode, cross-country to get to where their target for the next day was, uh, get a couple of hours sleep and be uh, ready and set up in the OP the next morning when the military activity took place. So there was a, a very distinct difference between the, uh, you know, the operating environment and the threat environment in both of those areas. And as far as the U.S. side of the house, whereas the Russians definitely let the Stasi take care of the, the CI coverage or the security coverage of you smell them, the U.S., from the very beginning, it started as part of the occupation powers, and then it became another reason. We never asked or allowed the West Germans to be involved in counterintelligence coverage of the, uh, the smell them F mission. And what this really became at some point was that we didn't want to allow the West Germans to do anything that might impact Smell-MF in a way that would impact our military mission or our, 
collection mission in East Germany. Because what use were found was, again, Usmellum was their biggest, most capable collection asset that they had. And anything, anytime something happened to Smellum F, if there was a detention or they suspected surveillance or whatever the case, there would be immediate repercussions on Usmellum, and that would impact that important mission. So, uh, you know, the, the U.S. position was as long as Smellum F is a relatively benign collection threat, they're only going out on tours once a day. Uh, as long as they're not being a problem, let's don't uh, push them too much, because if we do, then that's going to have impacts on our collection mission in the east. For uh, example, the detentions in the U.S. sector were much, much, much lower than they were in the east. But when there was a detention of a uh, of a Smellum F vehicle, you could be assured that within the next two to three days, there would be a detention of a U-Smellum vehicle, and it would usually be uh, pretty violent detention if it didn't involve a uh, actual vehicle ramming as well. And then, so for you know, for Smellamf to lose their accreditation documents for two of their tour officers for ten days, that really didn't have a big impact on their uh, at least their tour operation mission. But for U-Smellum officers to lose their accreditation documents for ten days, that would have a significant impact on their intelligence collection mission. So there was a relatively a hands-off approach to smell MF so that there was no impact on the U smell uh collection mission. And as you outlined there, I mean, the the counter-surveillance of the U.S. military liaison missions in East Germany were, were very aggressive. And there were two fatalities, one a French officer and another one with a, a U.S. officer. Yes. And that, again, that gets to kind of the difference in the uh, operational environment, because we talked about detention, but there were other there were two other additional risks that the uh, the U.S. faced in their sector that the Soviets were never subjected to in the uh, in the U.S. sector. And that was the risk of vehicle rammings and of shootings. Uh, there were a couple of cases where the East Germans began, uh, you know, what were technically campaigns of vehicle rammings to, uh, you know, kind of dissuade uh, intelligence collection. Um, and these were very common occurrences. Uh, and the occurrence that you talk about with the French uh, MLM officer in 1984 was a ramming of a vehicle that killed the officer. And it wasn't until after the end of the Cold War when Stasi documentation uh, was disclosed that this was a intentional ramming and it was an intentional act to uh, to punish a French officer who they thought was being very aggressive in his reconnaissance activities. And then the following year was the unfortunate event of Major Nick Nicholson, who was shot by a um, by a Soviet sentry uh, while out on tour. Some can look at it as an isolated incident. I would call it more like you know, that they had been dodging the bullet for years. And this was something that, uh, you know, might have even been destined to happen because of the um, 35 shootings since the first one in 1951 and the shooting of Nicholson in uh, 1985. Twelve of the shootings hit either vehicles or people. Fourteen of the shootings were known to be aimed rounds and only nine were clearly warning shots. So, you know, you can see for the incidents that did involve shooting, 75% of them at least appeared to be uh, aimed rounds. And and the Soviets were always very adamant in their position that a sentry has the right to guard his post and fire on a unidentified intruder. And this was a narrative that they continually uh, pronounced throughout 
the uh, MLM era. And when you look at it, the Huebner Millennium Agreement, which was the agreement that established the MLMs, it was based on a um, legitimate international agreement. So that means that thing, anything that takes place under that agreement is legitimized and normalized under international law. So the fact that the USMLM allowed multiple rammings to occur year after year after year, allowed shootings to occur year after year after year without, you know, calling them a deal breaker and saying that this is going to, you know, we're going to break the agreement if you don't stop doing this. It kind of legitimized those acts as norms under the international agreement. And that certainly came back to bite both the French in 1984 and uh, the U.S. in 1985, because basically that was the Soviets' argument was that those were norms that had been established and um, that everybody was warned about listening. Did any of the officers in the Soviet military liaison missions try to defect? No, they, they did not. In fact, it was not until the very end, and you know, if you, you've gone through the book, things kind of did change towards the end, but it wasn't even to, until the very end that we had a real valid defection plan for them, believe it or not. And once again, it was because Usurer believed that if, if one of the officers did, in fact, defect, that would be the end to the MLM. So again, they they didn't think the value of having a GRU officer back to them would be worth the negative impact that it would have on the mission. And I think this also gets to, as we talk about through the book, there was a real lack of understanding among user regarding what the true threat of the MLM may have been. And this kind of gets to the uh, the mirror imaging that we could talk about which was that you know the U.S. tended to think that the Smellum F threat was the same as what the uh, U-Smellum threat was to the East Germans. So they didn't kind of realize that perspective of what a 14-person uh, GRU residency operating out of, of a platform in West Germany, what that threat actually could be. So when they looked at uh, somebody who might defect to them, they didn't look at it as from the standpoint of this might be a GRU clandestine uh, UMET case officer, they just looked at it from the standpoint of, well, this is just one rat, some random tour officer. And so the value involved in that defection would not be worth the negative impact that you could possibly have on the uh, MLM missions. Yeah. And I think that that's a good point to come on to a, a question I had about uh, Soviet military liaison mission clandestine activity. Did they get up to anything that was contrary to the post-war agreements. Yeah, so this is, you know, this is where the big gap was from the US counterintelligence perspective on the entire uh, MLM issue. And I can go back to uh, you know a couple of the leads that were lost very early uh, in the process in in 1960 we we knew of we not army counterintelligence we the CIA were aware of a case where a double agent that was working for the U.S. was tasked by a GRU officer to establish a dead drop that would be serviced by one of the Soviet MLMs and also gave that agent uh, contact procedures to go to a uh, Soviet MLM uh, if they had information to provide. Now, the GRU officer that gave this guidance was inept, was uh, a drunkard. So we think that this might have been just one isolated case of those type of instructions. But if that was tradecraft for one MLM, it would have been tradecraft for the other MLMs. We don't think this information made it to the uh, counterintelligence 
side of the army. In addition to that, which happened in 1960, we knew that there were some instructions given that involved the uh, MLMs. There was a effort by the U.S. to implant technical listening devices on the Smell-MF facility as it was being built. Uh, as a piece of that operation, Army Counterintelligence established an observation post across from the Smell-MF compound, and we had the compound under constant observation for a two-month period during July-August of 1960, the very same year that we became aware of instructions to conduct emergency Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Communications procedures through the MLM. And while the agents were very focused on looking at big indicators such as, you know, were they building any SIGINT collection capabilities? Were they digging ditches around the facilities? Really, the information that they observed that was kind of lost was the fact that people could come to the compound fairly easily, be allowed onto the compound, be greeted by a uh, smell of map officer taken into the secure operations facility for amount of time, and then taken out and escorted off the facility. And of course, Army CI was not monitoring those activities that closely during that period or ever. And since we had not asked um, West German counterintelligence to do that, uh, there was no effort to identify those individuals who were coming onto the compound. So at the same time that we now know there were instructions to go to the compound for, for emergency communications was the same time that people could pretty freely come and go from the compound without USCI ever knowing who they are, or what they may have been doing. So I think in the book you detail a, a number of cases where, where that happened, and I think some of this information was revealed by a defection of a GRU officer, Vladimir Rezin. Yes, we, we talked about these two dots that were not connected in 1960, and from that time, it was really a 20-year, nearly a 20-year period where we didn't see any other indications of clandestine activity out of smell and that not that we were necessarily looking for anything either but so there was this big period where we just kind of assumed once again that smell and all they were doing was their rather benign tour activity and that was that's the threat that they posed and then it was with this defection that you mentioned for the first time and this was a very credible uh, individual he was the gru clandestine case officer working out of the un embassy in geneva switzerland so he provided information regarding two incidents involving Soviet military liaison missions, and, and he didn't mention which one, but based on the information they provided, it's a good bet that it was Smellum F. And the information he provided was about two uh, U.S. Army walk-ins who, uh, who volunteered information. And uh, one of them involved a U.S. major who walked in with some very detailed 
information regarding the U.S. nuclear uh, security program. And that document alone was very valuable to the GRU. But the uh, major's end game was really that he was offering the GRU to provide them a nuclear artillery shell for a large, a very large sum of money. So the uh, GRU agreed to this. It sounded like the major had a credible plan. His plan was that he would provide the artillery shell for them for two months and they would have the opportunity to study it and then get it back to him so he could put it into um, back into storage undetected. So they thought that this was a pretty uh, credible plan. So they made the arrangements. The majors provided the shell. They provided a large suitcase of banknotes to the major. They, you know, did the scan. They detected some uh, low yield radiation. So they packed it up, sent it to Moscow. And when uh, it was opened by the GRU or KGB headquarters in Moscow, they realized that the major had put together a very intricately um, developed replica of a, uh, of a shell and he had emplaced inside it some, you know, either nuclear waste or some metal that had been exposed to nuclear material just to give it enough of a reading to make it credible and make it seem like it was such. So um, and and when the GRU uh, went back and tried to uh, come to terms with this major who had duped him, they found out that at the time of the uh, of the exchange, he had been stationed back in the United States and uh Fortunately for him, he made the uh, the assessment that rather than try to seek retribution, they would just try to sweep this little uh, embarrassing event under the rug. So that that was an interesting antidote. But the key thing that, that we take from that is that these were the first kind of credible reports of SmellMF being involved in clandestine covert activities. And it's important to to note that the uh, the the source was only stationed in in. Geneva and only was operating as a GRU officer for four years from 1974 to 78. So these two events, you know, happened somewhere during that four year period. And so uh, there's no way of knowing that, you know, were these the only two events that happened during that period or these the only two that came to his attention? And you would have to assume that if these two walk in events happened during that four year period, there were probably more that did occur that just never came to our attention. Yeah, and and this is just some of the uh, incredible detail you have in this book, which I just found endlessly fascinating. I think that the story of the Stasi spy Paul Fuller, who escaped while being transported to prison, is an interesting one as well. Yeah, and I think it is too, because it kind of gets back to that information that we received in 1960, that it was GRU tradecraft, uh, that they would go to the MLM's for emergency procedures, because uh, Fula was a, a Stasi agent who had been working in the um, the West German nuclear program for, I don't know, 14 years, and he was arrested in 1979, and when he was being transferred from one prison to another, uh, he was able to escape, and he hid that night in the uh, Karlsruhe uh, Museum, and the next day he made his way some 20 miles to the Mellon, and so this would uh, you know, obviously he lived in Karlsruhe, so he would have known that there was an MLM uh, down in Baden-Baden. But this also might indicate that, uh, you know, as a Stasi agent back in the day, he had had kind of procedure, emergency procedures to travel to the uh, MLM uh, if he needed to. But he certainly knew that it was there. They kept him there uh, for, I believe, nine days before they transported him out of the sector in a uh, wooden box with holes in it 
in the trunk of the vehicle. So that too would kind of indicate that they had to plan the extraction. They probably did some dry runs to make sure that the West Germans didn't stop them as they were trying to go to the border. And then the fact that they used that type of box would kind of indicate it was not the first time uh, that they had done that type of operation. But again, along with the uh, information about the two U.S. MLM walk-ins, this was the first credible information that we had uncovered in what was kind of a 20-year blind period. And the fact is that we would not have even known about this event till well after the uh, Cold War and the MLM era if it wasn't for the fact that Fula left his family behind in West Germany. So a year later, he contacted the BFV and volunteered to provide information on his Stasi handlers for the opportunity of eventually making it back and being able to visit his family. So again, had it not been for that, the, that incident would have not been known either during, during the MLM uh, era. Yeah, there's uh, never a dull moment in, in this book. Um, Aiden, were the Soviet military liaison missions doing any preparatory work for units like Spetsnaz? Yeah, and they, they certainly were. And, and the uh, source that you talked about, Resin, he was the first that really started to give us a lot of good details regarding what the Spetsnaz elements were up to. Really, the first sensing that we got, it was interesting that we, we, were able, we were developing this information from the source based on what we knew the Spetsnaz or what we thought the Spetsnaz were doing at the same time that we actually had the opportunity to to observe that type of operation in the way that the Soviets uh, conducted their coup de main and took over the um, Afghanistan government using their Soviet Spetsnaz sleeper elements. And then as that was developing, we were starting to get more information about, you know, how dire the uh, the Soviet threat actually was. And they were we were starting to develop information regarding how they were establishing multiple uh, weapons cache sites across the countryside. There was also the information that was provided by Razon and also a very credible um, source, Gordievsky, who was providing uh, other information to us about uh, suitcase nukes, which were reported um, to be nuclear, small nuclear devices that were uh, buried uh, you know, underground, and they had to be attached to a permanent energy source. And when that energy source was disconnected or obstructed, it would send a signal to a GRU residency in West Germany to begin a recovery operation. And so certainly one would assume that by this time, the three Smellum elements had been identified as likely GRU residencies, that they would have been among those who would receive that fi- that signal and have to go out and try to recover the device or or fix the device. And then we had the reports of a number of um, sleeper agents, Spetsnaz, that were infiltrated into the country to be activated at the time of a uh, of an attack or something of that nature. Did, did you find any evidence of liaison with um, the Red Army faction or any of the other West German terrorist groups. No, there was there was no no there didn't didn't see any uh, indications of that. So, Ian, let me ask what what were you kind of getting at with that question? I was just interested to know because I know that obviously the Stasi were training the RAF in you know the use of RPGs and they carried out that attack on on General Haig in um, West Germany. So. And I know also from an interview I did recently that they were 
passing intel to the Stasi on American bases and American units. This is the Red Army faction were, were doing this as well. And I just wondered whether there was any link up there, but um, probably not. They probably wanted to keep them completely separate. Right. Aiden, well, whilst all this is, is going on, there, there's a number of spies within US intelligence that are betraying US secrets to the Soviets. Yeah, that's one of the uh, the kind of the in, one of the interesting backstories to uh, this this whole thing is that you know the first one it started in 1968. Of course, George Tropimov was a uh, he is involved in the Joint Interrogation Center effort, which was mainly one of the primary sources of UMET information. And these were line crossers, immigrants, any of people that came from the east would get into the system, try to earn their way to the West by providing information. So Trofimov really got to the um, a high level within the Joint Intelligence Center. And the interesting thing about this is at a location like this, this is where, of course, the focus is on Soviet military doctrine organization. So at the Joint Interrogation Centers, they would hold the latest complete holdings of all of the U.S. Army, uh, U.S. military's knowledge of Soviet forces so that they could, one, validate if the source was providing good information or to kind of shape the uh, question. So you smell them being one of the most prolific intelligence collection elements out there. All of their reporting, of course, goes to anybody that had anything to do with intelligence operations or plans uh, against the Soviet Union. So obviously Trofimov had um, access to all the Smellum, uh, you Smellum reporting. He was active from, I believe, 68 to about 87. Uh, we know that he provided the Soviets everything that was in uh, the JIC vault. So if they were interested in reading about it, we're sure that the uh, information about uh, you Smellum was compromised to them. Uh, the next case is the Zabo Conrad ring. We know that Zabo was uh, with the uh, 8th Infantry Division in Bad Kreuznach beginning in 1972. He was recruited by the Hungarians. He provided um, war plans from the vaults of the 8th ID to the Hungarians, which, of course, made their way to the uh, the Soviets. And we, we know about this because we had a very well-placed source that came to us by 1978-1979 that informed the CIA that as soon as NATO and uh, USERA put out their war plans, they're on the shelf in Moscow in no time at all, and the individual who had provided the latest war plan was given $50,000 for providing it, and that was in 1979. So we had very credible information that the Soviets uh, were getting this information. And of course, when Zabo was getting ready to retire, he recruited Clyde Conrad, who is, of course, one of the most notorious spies, you know, in, in the annals of counterintelligence and, and espionage. And so he continued, um, his providing everything, you know, to include all you smell and reporting had to have been there. He provided everything in the eighth ID vaults to the Hungarian service who in turn provided that information to the uh, Soviets. And when he retired in 1985, he had another uh, source spy in place. So he would continue to keep his ring running. It ran into a few snags, but he maintained sources who was able to provide him information from the 8th ID Infantry Division vault to the, uh, to the Hungarians up until at least um, 1987. 
USCI ran a very successful both um, counter espionage and counter surveillance operation and were eventually able to uh, lead to the, the Germans to the arrest of Conrad in uh, 1988. Uh, one additional sad story is uh, James Hall III. He, was, uh, he volunteered his services to both the uh, KGB and the Stasi in 1985. He was double dipping, um, you know, providing the same information to both of those. But really, in addition to Conrad, um, Hall was providing some very, very sensitive information that, you know, if you talk about two guys that would have tipped the balance had the uh, Cold War gone hot, Conrad and Hall were the two that were providing information that truly could have and probably would have um, been decisive in, in how that uh, that conflict went. But um, uh, one other anecdotal piece that uh, applies to Hall is uh, he was part of a um, an analyst uh, crosstalk group that was you know meeting in Berlin, and this is where local analysts would get together and kind of you know pass their information to queue intelligence and things like that. And so uh, in early 1984, the Usmelum, you know, they had one of their collection coups where they took advantage of some drunk uh, Soviet soldiers on New Year's Eve, and they were able to get inside one of their latest modified tanks and actually get pictures and details of the tank. So at the next analytical exchange, you know, the USMELM analyst was very proud to come to the, uh, to the table and show the pictures and let them know that uh, what had happened. And of course, sitting at that table also was Hall. And he was able to uh, take that information and provide that to the Soviets. And when Hall was debriefed after he was arrested, he was aware that uh, Nicholson had been shot uh, the year following and he said he he went into a state of depression because he felt uh, that he was responsible for the Nicholson shooting. Now, I would make a number of arguments as to why it wouldn't make sense that the Soviets would, um, you know, put at risk one of their most highly uh, valued sources just to put information down, uh, you know, to the Soviets that uh, they needed to do a little better uh, job of of um, guarding their equipment. And there really, other than the Nicholson shooting, there was no discernible increase in security that took place after that. So we think that's kind of a, just a little bit of a folklore that's really not supported by any other evidence than Hall's bad conscience, I guess. One of the things I'd, I found that I'd, I hadn't heard of before was Project Trojan, which uh, I think Hall betrayed yeah, that that is the project when I refer to that probably would have given the uh, Soviets the decisive advantage uh, had had we gone to war because the the Soviets at the time had the large, or at least we thought they did, had the large advantage in armored vehicles. So Project Trojan it was a project where we were able through technical capabilities to basically fingerprint all of the Soviet equipment. So, so like each tank would have kind of its own unique uh, fingerprint. Each piece of equipment has its own unique signals fingerprint. So we, that we were able to use that project and we would have been able to very accurately target target the, the, the vehicles in the time of war. So once we lost that, then we lost what we thought was going to be kind of our mitigating factor in the uh, overwhelming Soviet um, advantage. And, you know, just to talk when when we talk about how severely damaging both Hall and Conrad were, when we talk about Conrad, when he was, you know, there were some some unfortunate events that we had to turn that case over to the West Germans. But they were glad to convict him. And he was even given the death penalty, which is very rare, as you know, in West German 
courts, but the judge at the court said that based on the information that Conrad had compromised to the Soviets, if there had been a war, NATO would have very quickly been given the option to either capitulate or turn West Germany into a nuclear battlefield. That's how severely damaged we were by the information that Conrad provided to the Soviets. Wow. Wow. It's incredible. Incredible. And th- and these the the book is just full of these uh in incredible stories. I think one of the ones I found really um interesting was the one about the the drugging of the two US military liaison officers, which was disbelieved at the time, I think. That's an interesting case and it kind of leads to another interesting case if you allow me, but um yeah, the, this was the I believe um Late 1979, four of the uh, MLM officers, the chief, the deputy chief, and the officer who was in line to become the uh, next deputy chief and one other major, attended what was a traditional gift exchange at the uh, Soviet um, location. We called it the Soviet External Relations Bureau, the CERB. So it was just a, a night of to- you know toasts and caviar and exchange gifts. And so as they left, three of the USMLM officers drove in a vehicle and the chief and his driver drove in a separate vehicle. Three officers were driving back to uh, the compound after they cleared the checkpoint back into uh, West Berlin. The driver lost control of the vehicle. It hit a sideswiped a couple of vehicles and careened up a uh, embankment before it came to a stop. And the driver was completely unresponsive. The, uh, the MLM officer next to him, you know, told him to move the car. He was unresponsive. So the other officer came around, pulled him out, moved the car to a uh, safe location. And then he, too, the the officer that moved the car the second time, he, too, became incapacitated. So, you know, they were in West Berlin. The MPs showed up. They had vodka on their breath. There were broken bottles in the vehicle. So they were charged with um, with DUI, driving under the influence of alcohol. But, you know, they contended that there's no way that um, that the the shots they had could have had that impact, and they were convinced that they were drugged. In fact, both both of the officers took a drug test following the event, and they were both to have found to have had compounds that they, you know, were not prescribed or didn't ingest. One of them was kind of, uh, you know, kind of indicative of the type of things that you would use uh, to be drugged. But um, you know, this is another case where one, the overwhelming evidence was that they were um, driving under the influence. If you're familiar with the Uniform Code of Military Justice, that gives commanders a vehicle to very quickly uh, impose justice and make a uh, make a determination on guilt or non-guilt. So these two officers were very quickly found uh, guilty of DUI and quietly sent out of the uh, of the area and and sent away. And obviously the U.S. had made this a larger issue and open investigation into whether or not uh, they were in fact drugged. It would have been a significant international issue and probably brought visibility on the MLMs that might have brought them to an end or at least impacted their, their their mission. So again, it was in everybody's interest to kind of ensure that this little thing goes away. And then it was not until long after the Cold War was over two years ago that uh, documents came from the Stasi files, which were signed by a um, Stasi officer saying that on that night, the uh, our friends had um, you know completed the mission of discrediting these officers and they have now been uh, sent away. So that document would tend to justify to the, that these officers were, in fact, drugged. However, 
people that were at the MLM at the time, they contend that they think that the two officers were in fact intoxicated and correctly charged with DUI, but the Stasi, you know, being the uh, the ever uh, advantageous element that they are, just saw that they had the opportunity that uh, to take credit for an event that had some uh, you know good outcomes for them. So they doctored the documentation, saying you know that taking credit for uh, for something that had happened. So you know, obviously, the officers credit they're going to go to their grave saying that they know that they were drugged, but uh, you know the, the issue uh, you know is is still under debate, but it is a, a very interesting one. And it just kind of goes to show the tangled web that we did have with the MLMs. And uh, it's interesting that just uh, a couple of years later, there was a, uh, the DAO in Moscow was very interested, you know, this was the time of the unrest in Poland, and we were very interested in seeing if there was any uh, Soviet intentions to invade Poland. So the DAO, the Defense Attaché Office in Moscow, was submitting daily requests to be able to go towards the Ukraine border to see if there were any indications of a buildup. And these requests were getting the kind of pro forma disapproval day after day after day. And then out of the blue, one of these requests was approved and uh, two officers were authorized to uh, travel down to uh, get close enough to the border to whether where they would have been able to see any indications of a uh, buildup. So the plan was they would take the train uh, to Kiev, pick up a car that was placed there by the DAOs, and then drive to the area. Well, when they got to their car that was supposedly in a secure parking space, it had been damaged. So they had to take the vehicle to a local shop where they lost control of it for a while. And then once they got the vehicle back, they traveled to the uh, hotel and their uh, kind of target location. And they were followed by a, you know, a suspicious blue car. And that just as they got to the hotel, you know, the vehicle started having mechanical problems, but, but they made it. So what they didn't kind of realize when they, or at least they didn't think about when they uh, were planning uh, this adventure was that according to the um, Orthodox calendar, uh, this was New Year's Eve, even though it was the, I guess, the 13th of uh, January. So when they got to the hotel, you know, there was a very festive atmosphere. So they took the advantage of being able to, uh, you know, mingle with the locals. And after a couple of um, drinks, a couple of nice looking uh, Ukrainian women showed up. One thing happened to another. Uh, one of the uh, defense attaches was drugged and incapacitated. Another was found uh, in a um, hotel room, KGB bust in. He was having a tryst with one of the ladies, you know, the, and then he was confronted with the um, uncomfortable facts that, uh, you know, he was a U.S. Army officer, married, trusted <laughs> not to get into these type of situations, and that he was going to become the middle of an uh, international incident. So the next morning, the two officers uh, tried to kind of sneak out, found that their car wasn't working. So they came back to the hotel to let their uh, embassy know that they would not be uh, that they were marooned for the day. And so interestingly, as the officers came back into the hotel, one of the officers who, oh, by the way, I, I should have mentioned both of these officers had been previously stationed at US MLM. Uh, one of the officers noticed by the elevator an individual who had been the chief of the Soviet external relations branch when he was stationed at Usmelum. Uh, he was in civilian clothes. So he went over, introduced, you know, said hi. Well, obviously, he was um, recognized, and the uh, GRU officer uh, said, well, uh, why don't we uh, meet for dinner? So they arranged to meet for dinner, and 
and they did. So uh, when the um, the this the defense attaché was you know waiting at the table, the GRU officer came in. They exchanged pleasantries. The GRU officer sat down, uh, lit a cigarette, and of course the uh, the local um, the waiter reminded him that there was no smoking inside. But uh, you know he's a GRU officer in Ukraine. Um, he can smoke wherever he wants, but that wasn't the issue. So he talked to the uh, DAO officer and said, well, let's, uh, let's go take a walk. And then the, the conversation very quickly came to the events of the previous night. And the GRU officer, you know, who had had a pretty good relationship with this officer when they were together, you smell and said, hey, look, I can make sure that your bosses never uh, hear about this. And obviously that was a, the recruitment effort. But the you smell them officer rightly <laughs> Uh, refused the office offer, and uh, you know he then, when he returned to the uh, uh, Moscow uh, residence, uh, he told his story, and he was out of the country within uh, two days. And kind of the irony, or the the interesting part of this, is that that officer, that you smell him officer, was in the process of being vetted for a advisor role for the U.S. Um, Vice President George H. W. Bush. So it would it would all factors would indicate that the KJV was aware that this uh, individual is going to be in a very high position. So they orchestrated this uh, honey honeypot uh, entrapment type of recruitment uh, effort to try to recruit him. So while the Soviets um, didn't show a great propensity to try to recruit individuals where they when they were at Usmelum, obviously they kept files on these individuals and identified, you know, things, exploitable traits within them. And they must have identified that, uh, you know, during their time with him at Usmelum, that this might be the kind of guy who would be susceptible to this type of blackmail and exploitation effort. And so, so you know, just kind of an interesting tie uh, between that event and this other one. And it also was released in the press by the New York Times, and then it was reputed by uh, TASS, the uh, Russian press agency. So they talked about the uh, the drugging event that actually did take place. So it was basically confirmed in a leak from the State Department to the press so that the drugging did take place. And interestingly, in the article, it said this was the first identified drugging event involving U.S. government officials and the Soviets since the event that took place in 1968 in Moldova. So obviously they didn't have any visibility or understanding of the event that had taken place in late 1979 that could have also been a uh, drugging event. Incredible, incredible stories. I mean, it, that, that one is almost like an episode of The Americans or, or something like that with, you know, the possibility of this guy, you know, being close to the uh, president as well. One of, one of the, the chapters I did find, um, one of the many many, many chapters that I did find interesting was that you had a section on U.S. counterintelligence where you detail uh, some of the penetration, Soviet penetration agents who are in the FBI and the CIA. And I think listeners will be familiar with some of those names, Robert Hansen um, and uh, Aldrich Ames. But um, I, th- I think one of the the areas that I wasn't necessarily aware of was this KGB Colonel Yurchenko and his defection or non-defection. Yeah, Yurchenko, he was an interesting case. And and this kind of gets back to one of the themes that you will find in the book. And you talk about some of the original players, you know, with um, there was James Angleton who came up with the 
deception theory, the wilderness of mirrors theory. And there were a couple of key defectors who kind of reinforced his notion of this Soviet grand strategy. And he became convinced that every defector or would-be defector was a Soviet provocation effort. And this technically kind of shut down U.S. CI and UMET operations for a large part for until the mid-70s and well into the the 80s. And then, you know, so we basically did not receive defectors during a very long period. And this defector, Yurchenko, who was a KGB officer who defected, I believe, to the Rome embassy and then was flown to the United States, he was the first defector that we had had in a really valid uh, GRU or KGB defector in about a 20-year period. So our processes for handling these type cases were not the best. But interestingly, the individual who greeted this defector at the airport, who obviously had some interest in talking with him to make sure that he wasn't aware of uh, too many spies in the uh, in the U.S. was Aldrich James. He was the CIA case officer who was uh, assigned to begin the CIA portion of the interrogations of uh, Yurchenko. And Yurchenko, for all intents and purposes, appeared to be a very valid um, uh, source. He was providing information that led to the uh, to the arrest of um, a couple of spies. He identified some uh, areas of compromised uh, operations that we were very aware of. So he was giving very credible information at the time. But interestingly, all the information that he was providing was, of course, going to Aldrich Chains, which is, of course, going back to the Soviets. So any of the information that he was providing the U.S. intel was immediately making its way back to the Soviets. And then also, once uh, Robert Hansen, had, near the same time, he began once again working for the Soviets. He, too, was uh, on the FBI side of handling Yurchenko. So he, too, was providing information from the debriefs to the Soviets. But the uh, FBI and CIA handlers of Yurchenko made a couple of missteps. Again, they hadn't been uh, too good at this. Uh, Yurchenko, one of his objectives of defecting was that he wanted to rekindle a relationship that he had had with the who was the wife of a, um, a Russian diplomat now stationed in Canada. The CIA arranged for him to try to re-meet her. She called him a traitor. This kind of uh, upset him. So um, eventually Yurchenko had second thoughts, walked away from his CIA handler at a lunch one day and walked to the Russian embassy. And a couple of days later, there was a big, um, the press was called in and Yurchenko gave this story that, of course, the U.S. intelligence knew was not the truth, that somebody splashed some um, some liquid on him when he was in Rome and he was whisked away to a, to a safe house somewhere in Virginia and interrogated and that he, you know, he did not voluntarily provide any information. So um, he had redefected back to the Soviets. And it's interesting that one of the sources that uh, that the FBI was running in D.C. was assigned to the detail to take Yurchenko back to Moscow. Now, normally, if a individual who we know is one of our assets is called back to Moscow without a good explanation, then we would consider this as a possibility that they've been identified and we would probably pull them out and um, get have have them defect. But since this was kind of a plausible reason that he was part of the escort service back to uh, Moscow, you know, the CIA and FBI didn't think it was a big deal. But this was a guy who had been previously compromised by Ames and he had been also compromised by Hansen. So as soon as he 
got back to Moscow, he was um, unceremoniously arrested and eventually uh, executed. So when Yerchenko got back to Moscow, obviously Ames and Hansen had provided all the information back to the Soviets. So they knew that at one point he had been a legitimate defector who was providing good, credible information to the U.S. and that he had just had a change of heart. But the Soviets, we believe, knew that they could not let it be known that they knew that he was not a valid defector and punish him because then that might make us wonder, well, what sources in the U.S. is perhaps giving them information to lead them to this conclusion? So the Soviets put on the uh, show about welcoming him back with open arms as a uh, as a national hero. So he probably uh, unknowingly was allowed to um, to continue to live just because he had come into contact unwittingly with uh, Ames and Hansen. Another incredible and complex story, that one. But it's obviously clear to the CIA or to the uh, U.S. counterintelligence that there is some there's a leak. There's a major leak. Yeah. So beginning probably around, you know, Ames made his big dump of a large number of sources to the KGB around June of 1985. And one of the reasons, you know, according to Ames, what he said he was doing, he originally made a deal with the KGB and he was going to feed them source information that they already knew about and get paid for really not providing them any information. But then when um, Johnny Walker was arrested earlier in that year. Ames was not convinced that uh, it was Walker's wife who uh, who turned him in. Ames was convinced that it was a source, a U.S. source in Russia that must have provided the information that led to Walker's arrest. So at that point, Ames became committed to compromising as many of our high-level assets as he possibly could so that they would get sweeped up and executed before they had a chance to identify him. So he gave, I mean, it was incredibly damaging, the the sources uh, that he provided. You know, I mentioned the one source in 1978-79 that told us that the Russians were receiving uh, the NATO op plans as soon as they were being published. Well, that source who provided that most credible information and also told us that it was going to the Hungarian service, Hungarian intelligence service, was one of the sources that Ames compromised and was uh, arrest, later arrested and executed. By the end of 1985, when all of these uh, spies were being rolled up, we, the CIA and the FBI to some degree, realized that there was a, was a serious problem. But, you know, for, for reasons that we, we kind of go into in the book, there was not the sense of urgency uh, that you would expect when you know that you have this type of a uh, mole somewhere in your organization. So the, the CIA really didn't, you know, put the time and effort into this type of operation that you would think that they would. They uh, stood up a task force that only consisted of, I think, two full-time and one part-time analyst agents to investigate the issue. But Ames was was very concerned because of kind of the haphazard manner in way in the way that the um, the Soviets were rolling up these spies and uh, and having them killed because it was obvious to uh, the U.S. intelligence that hey there was a big problem. So Ames was stationed uh, to Rome. You know he used the same trick that he used to uh, 
to compromise information the first time around was he he established a credible communications channel with a Russian agent under the ruse that he was vetting that agent for recruitment. And so he, he made contact and he insisted on meeting his case officer to find out why it was that the Soviets had so haphazardly rolled up all these um, all these sources that he had compromised in a manner that you know obviously pointed towards somebody high in the uh, in the CIA Russian department. So he was able to get a meeting with his uh, KGB case officer, and he was told that yeah, well, the bad news is that this information went directly to Gorbachev who was very upset about it, and he demanded that all these agents be rolled up. But don't worry, we have a plan for you. And this kind of all goes back to the wilderness of mirrors, Angleton, uh, you know, what his fears were about how the Soviets uh, would have moles and uh, assets within the intelligence service, and they would use those individuals not only to provide information, but they would also use them to feed information to kind of disinform the intelligence service, lead them away. You know, if they're getting towards one of their assets, provide information that would lead them away. And so we saw this in a number of cases throughout the Cold War. And this is another one where they put a plan into place to very deliberately lead the analysts away from Ames. So they um, provided uh, a number of, you know, support sources, provided information. A couple of sources said that they were, the information was provided by one of the spies that had been arrested based on Yurchenko's information. Also, they said that some of the information was collected through a telephone tap at the CIA headquarters. They even had some of the agents who were compromised by Ames, who had not been killed, they were able to keep keep alive and continue to interrogate. They had those agents contact their agent handlers in the CIA, let them know that they were still alive, but it's just that they needed to lay low because of all the arrests. So they basically, the KGB kept feeding um, false information to the CIA, which continued to lead them away from Ames. So this kept their resources, you know, tied up for six, seven years where they really just had this, um, unsuccessful uh, investigation uh, into uh, to Ames. And then, you know, kind of the very disheart, well, one of the, the ironic pieces of the whole Ames investigation thing was that when the CIA finally brought the FBI, when the FBI should have been brought in from the beginning, because they really have jurisdiction on domestic counterintelligence issues, and they have a large, you know, number of investigators they could have put against the issue, but, you know, kind of the CIA didn't want to admit that they might have a mole in their midst, so they didn't bring the FBI in until very late in the game. It was so when the FBI began investigating it, they found one receipt, you know, a a bank um, deposit that coincided with one of Ames's visits to the Soviet embassy in 1985. So as it turned out, the lead that actually led to the arrest of Ames was a simple um, investigative lead that came from, uh, you know, June of 1985 when he actually began his espionage. And when the CIA did the after action report on, you know, what were the causes? How did this happen? What they identified was that you know, after the Angleton years where he had basically shut down the CIA from being able to accept defectors, uh, you know, there was kind of a anti-Angleton orthodoxy that developed in the CIA where counterintelligence was not a big thing. It wasn't where the up-and-comers would go anymore. They were having their budget slashed. So they 
So the report basically said that kind of the environment that allowed an Ames to operate, because Ames did not use very good tradecraft. He was not a uh, intelligent guy. He was a drunkard. But the environment that allowed him to um, to flourish was kind of a backlash against the uh, very paranoid era of Angleton. So kind of an interesting twist of how, uh, you know, you can almost say that Angleton, even though he wasn't around after 1974, his kind of uh, his history continued to uh, hurt the CIA for years to come. Fascinating. Endlessly fascinating. There is loads more in the book. The book is called The Cold War Wilderness of Mirrors, Counterintelligence and the US and Soviet Military Liaison Missions, 1947 to 1990. It's a a really good read. I've learned so much from this that I, I didn't know about. And I know that Cold War Conversations listeners are interested in this subject. So, uh... Please check out the links in the episode notes as to how to buy the book. Now, this show wouldn't exist without our generous Patreons, so I want to thank one and all of them for their support. You can very easily become a Patreon by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. And you can also join our Facebook group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Thanks very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.